Welcome to the Act React podcast, where we explore improvisation through conversations with remarkable artists. I'm the host, Daniel Burkholder, a dance artist living here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the ancestral and unceded lands of the Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Potawatomi peoples. And I'm truly excited to share with you today's conversation with Rhiannon. I didn't know Rhiannon before this conversation, as she was suggested as a possible guest for this podcast by Ruth Sephora. The two of them have collaborated many times over the last couple decades, and of course, any suggestion from Ruth is one I take seriously. Rhiannon is a wonderful vocal artist whose experience with improvisation is extensive, as you'll hear in our conversation, and was really quite wonderful um, getting to know her a bit through this conversation. Before we jump into that conversation, here is a bit more about Rhiannon. Rhiannon is a vocal artist with a vision of music as a vehicle for innovation, healing, transformation, and social change. A vibrant, gifted singer, performance artist, composer, and master teacher, Rhiannon has been bringing her unique and potent blend of jazz, world music, improvisation, and storytelling to audience for over four decades, paving a unique path as an independent artist. Collaborations have included the all-women's jazz ensemble Alive, acapella ensembles Sovo So, and We Be Three, with Bobby McFerrin and Voistra and Gimme Five. The instrumental trio Spontaneous, duets with pianist Lawrence Hobgood, and improvised performances with Japanese dancer Shizuno Nasu, The Ocean Regards Us All as One. Rhiannon's book about her life and teaching methods, Vocal River, The Skill and Spirit of Improvisation, was published in 2013. Rhiannon lives and works on her farm on the big island of Hawaii, currently building a teaching performance space, Halau Leonani, The Gathering Place, Honoring Culture and Community. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and let's begin. Hi, Rhiannon. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. You're so welcome. Good to be here. Yeah. You know, um, Ruth Sapora kind of connected us. And after mm -hmm. about a year ago, I talked with her about her practice. And then I, you know, I asked, oh, is there anyone else I should talk to? And her response was immediately, I should talk with you. She, you're, like, you're like, yes, you have to talk to Rhiannon. So um, I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, kind of the first question I ask everyone is, could you offer some kind of reflection or insight in how improvisation is in your life right now, in your work, in your daily life, however improvisation shows up for you kind of right now, these days? Uh, <clears throat> I would say uh, everywhere, as I would... <clears throat> talk to my students about it the practice seems to involve uh, the music but in fact it's it's really meant to be uh, everywhere all the time because for me improvisation means uh, choice options possibilities being able to look in a new direction when the direction you're going in is not working. And that can apply to so many parts of life, um, including the madness we're living in on the planet these days, trying to figure out how uh, to adjust and be flexible. Yeah. 
Yeah, so maybe let we let's just go ahead and jump in and and talk about like how does that show up for you when you're performing? How like developing choice, having options. How do you kind of negotiate in the in the real kind of in the moment making making those choices? Well, it's um, I I, <clears throat> I was um, trained as a jazz musician. And then diverted from there because I wanted to let go of the forms to having both vocal and instrumental ensembles that didn't use any charts at all. So I think the question you're asking is, uh, how do we approach the performance? And the answer would be empty. Hmm. Empty. Yeah. Could you Could you say more about that? Like, what does that... What is, how do you arrive at that state of emptiness or being empty? Well, I make a promise to myself and not to, uh, not, I, I make a promise to myself to physically warm up during the day, to be as um, something about sweating and physical activity can really clear the mind. Yeah. And then I vocally warm up so that my instrument is able to move through my range. Yeah. Um, I tr I, but when I actually begin, uh, the idea is to be empty hmm. so that there's no rocks in the road. <laughs> That's how I, I used to feel when I was doing concerts where there were, um, uh, song form there was song form and there was also improvisation yeah. i would feel like if i knew those song forms were there i would always be wondering when i was going to perform those what would be the right time as soon as those all went away uh it felt cleaner like anything could happen uh, the, the agreement I make when I'm working with instrumentalists or singers is that I want different people to start. I don't want to be the one who would start everything because yeah. the entry place is, is half the half the, uh, the piece. Yeah. And if everybody enters, we have all these diverse entry spots. I started singing with Bobby McFerrin about 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he was a great teacher in that way because I've watched him up close in front of huge audiences. And he does the same thing he does when we're in rehearsal, which is he he calms himself. We stand backstage in a circle and uh, we're in silence, but we're in this kind of prayerful uh, moment of committing ourselves to uh, the very best that we can bring to this moment. And then we go on stage and uh, empty as possible. And how it starts is how it starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really lovely. I, I love the thought of when you're performing, I assume, especially because when you're kind of like directing or organizing or facilitating the performance happening, um, you are also making sure that you have other starting places. So I and so so everyone's not always looking towards you, but it becomes more of a more equal collaboration. Even I mean, I've been in the situation where like I'm the one organizing everything and securing things and doing stuff, but I don't. But artistically, I don't want to be in the lead in that same way. 
And so finding exactly. that balance between, yeah, I got the gig, but we're all doing the gig. <laughs> well, because I have to, that assumes that I'm trusting the people I'm on stage with to be present and skilled and intuitive. And I do. Yeah. Otherwise I wouldn't be on stage with them. And that means I'm thrilled by the ideas that they come up, which, which are not the ideas I would come up with just yeah. offers us a lot more options. And in terms of instruments, if the bass player comes in, it's something I couldn't even negotiate in my instruments. So yeah. It's, it's going to take it to an entirely different place. I also think it's great to figure out how to initiate an improvisational piece and also how to join an improvisational piece. Yeah. Oh, that is an interesting. Yes, I've I've been um, I've been off stage, standing there watching someone start and thinking it, it might take me a while before I join into this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I I love that moment because I have to figure out how to contribute, not to initiate, but to contribute. Those are really different skills. And, and I think some people are better than one than at another. So when we're working in studio, I, I, I really want everybody to learn how to do both things. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that word contribute. I often talk about initiating and supporting the thing, mm -hmm. but contributing is also another, another word that fits in there really, really nicely. Um, you mentioned trust and having trust with your fellow musicians, your fellow collaborators. Um, I know part of that is like knowing someone and seeing someone and knowing that they're skilled or experienced or something like that. But there's also something about developing that trust um, as a group or as even just uh, individually with another person on stage or through rehearsals. How do you, do you have a sense of how that, develops for you like when you know when you when you get to the place where you know you can feel like you can trust someone um in performance is there a well, it's yeah for example with ruth sure. uh, she and i have done performances maybe even longer than 40 years we met each other in the bay area and uh started working together both observing each other and then doing some performances together and then learning how to teach together. But she's, uh, I know her deeply as a friend, mm. which adds enormously to my trust of her on stage. And if you know Ruth, you know that she's going to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. She's not going to sugarcoat it or beat around the bush. She's going to tell you what she observes. And yeah. I, I deeply trust that yeah. uh, not to mention she has a really beautiful aesthetic and a whole lifetime of creating pieces yeah. uh, so and then there's another dancer I work with named Margie Gillis who lives up in Montreal and the same goes for her the as we became friends the work just deepened with her I felt like I needed to not watch her while we were performing together huh? it, with dancers. If I start watching them too much, I can get caught in their track. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so sometimes I, uh, I, I on purpose 
turn away from them and try to just feel them and follow my own through line as a singer. And as I watch the videos of it afterwards, that seems to work often very well because yeah. uh, we know each other and I'm then I'm not getting pulled in to their uh, their beautiful work, <laughs> but <laughs> but really able to go alongside it. Yeah. If I'm with uh, the singers, I have a training called All the Way In, which lasts for a year. Uh, people come and study with me for a week at a time. Then we have homework and we meet on Zoom and the more homework and then we meet again live. And so over the year, uh, the trust begins to develop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do a lot of exercises that have to do with trust because you're right, you can't really do this work successfully without that you you can meet somebody you've never met before but I think even then you have to make an assumption that you're both doing this for the good of the work and the world yeah and you launch in with a kind of implicit trust that it will work but if you know them and you know things about them it it can help enormously yeah, it, it's really true. There is something about, like, as you said earlier, just improvisation is like all around us, right? Like we're improvising right now in this conversation and, and stuff like that. And there's something about when you're going to be improvising with someone else, if you also experience like walking down the street with them or cooking a meal with them or exactly. like spending like traveling together and having to negotiate how all that works, like you just- Or arguing. Or arguing, yeah, figuring out how to have the argument and then come back from it. And like that all of a sudden builds this like much more solid place. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun to meet someone just like spontaneously, you know, you're at, I don't know, I've been at a festival and they're like, oh, you two perform together and you get up and something can kind of spark and happen. But it's mm-hmm. it, it's not that deep richness that you feel with someone with that kind of history that you have with them. So, um, you know, yeah, you, but, you know, also it can yeah. be uh, counterly. Uh, sometimes I've improvised with somebody I don't know, but they know the same improvising work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the magic of that is is especially profound because it's coming from really kind of I would say a soul level because you don't have a friendship to base it on no. so it's uh, it, it it can be very magical I, I love that about improvisation that yeah. it is a set of uh, when Ruth and I realized that even though we were in different forms we were actually heading in the same direction I mean if you look at the way we teach it looks very different yeah the final uh, the final product of working in that way is very similar so when we perform together uh it it had that kind of magic right from the beginning like i don't know how i know what you're doing or what you're about to do but i can feel we're going to be able to go there together and yeah i i'm sure that our friendship was greatly deepened by improvisation yeah rather than the other way around yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You, you bringing up Ruth Sapora again and thinking about movement, and I, I was struck um, reading reading your book and you know making my way through it. I 
didn't get through all of it quite, but, but I did get through quite a bit of it. And you talked about your dad dancing. And I had the experience of my father being an avid ballroom dancer and his father being an avid square dancer. So I yeah. always talk about coming from a lineage of men who dance and, and reading about your experience of seeing your dad dance after like also seeing him being so physical at the farm. And, and after I read that, I was kind of reading later and I was struck in the exercises. The first thing you have them, the very first exercise in your list of exercise is to dance. Exactly. Well, because singers are not trained to move well. They are trained to stand still. And in the early days, it would even be about how they held their hands or their kind of uh, upright posture in the crook of the piano. That <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of protocol to it all. Yeah. But uh, of course, my my life with my mom and dad who danced together and separately, but um, uh, I just always loved dancers. And so as I started working with my singers, I saw how much they needed it as well. And it's it's a simple thing. You get your bodies warmed up, you get sweating, It's just even on that physical level, but you also start moving around each other and exploring space and figuring out how to articulate parts of the body so that you're not a block. Yeah. <laughs> because for singers, it's it changes the whole nature of the sound. Once the body is activated, you can get sound further and further down in your body until finally the whole body is involved in making the sound rather than the apparent apparatus, which is the lungs and the vocal right. cords. And right. right. The diaphragm is important, but it's not the only thing kind of thing. Exactly. Right? No, it's got to be down in the hips. It's got to be in all those soft tissue organs. It's got to be down in the legs. And of course, there's all the memory that bodies hold that's so um, expressive, even if you're not directly addressing it in words, there's a way that who we are and all the experiences we've been through affect the way we move. So I started with my uh, the singers that come to All the Way In, where I have them for longer, working on um, a, a project that starts with a piece called Murmuration, which you know is the the starlings that fly by the hundreds in the sky. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful shapes. Yeah. So I know that dancers have used that idea of moving yeah. across the floor together. Yeah. So I watched that and I got the idea of doing that with the singers, but they would make a move that would have a sound with it. Ideally, it would be a, a two or four bar phrase that had a musical interest mm -hmm. and they would all make the sound in movement and move across the floor and yeah. uh, navigate how to harmonize that perhaps or to uh, create an interlocking pattern so that there would be two groups moving mm -hmm. just to get them understanding how to move together and calm down because one of the things about improvisers is they're always thinking about uh, the next thing uh, where am i now where am i now yeah and yeah the murmuration somehow calms that all down so that you just get interested in this unified 
movement. Uh, you know, singers talk about unison as a kind of holy place. They say in a lot of the old indigenous and uh, village cultures around the world that you can zip open the horizon and see into other realms mm. if in unison. That that power of that single vibration is so strong, you like open it up. And uh, I have the experience of wanting to do that more and more. So the murmuration is this unison as uh, in the body as well. And then we've taken that further into a thing called immersion, in which we go for 45 minutes to an hour, where we okay. just enter the space and we do these murmurations, but they lead to, oh, there's a duet that wants to happen. Everybody else will understand and they will leave the space mm -hmm. uh, or create a space for that to happen. So it's a flowing movement oriented, Not we're not trying to be dancers. Yeah. We are learning the power of the body and voice together. Yeah. And I feel like I'm just latched on to the next 10, 20 years of my life's work, which is to explore how that happens, because then they're not only saying they're, they're not only. Well, they're choreographing. Mm -hmm. They're understanding generosity, when to enter, when to leave, how often to come in. <laughs> How, oh, that's been enough for me. Let me go off. How to join a big group, how to stand in front and be solo, how to join a trio, all, all kinds of subtle group dynamics that uh, are really important in developing an improvised performance. Because as you know, the more you can free flow mm -hmm. performance, the less you have to stop and start again or stop and start again. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I, I know ex having experienced and, and led to a little bit of from the opposite side, being a dancer, moving and say, oh, now as you move, vocalize what you're moving, you know, exactly. and it's often not singing. It's just noises or percussive noises or whatever, some kind of vocalization and how dancers are often very timid about that. Um, but when they when we can get to a place where we're really committed, it also changes the movement, right? Having the sound changes the, the vibrate, right? Because of the vibrations and just activating more of ourselves, um, it can create a more fullness with the movement. Exactly. And even, uh, after, Margie, even after we stop vocalizing, that fullness can still be present. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Margie Gillis, who's up in Montreal, her dancers, uh, come over have for two winters come over uh, during the hard Montreal winter and nice. come to Hawaii and done a lot of movement voice work because Margie's idea is that there's more of uh, vocalizing and maybe not even just sounds but actual held pitches and uh, exploring which one of which ones of the dancers feel stronger about it and it's going to be the same some of them will do more some will do less but if everybody has the feeling that it's part of their artistic expression it will just be a, a bigger field of play yeah yeah that's really wonderful um we've kind of touched on this already but one thing i did want to just ask you about is a little bit of like kind of the importance of collaboration and how that offers 
offers opportunity. You you mentioned being empty and then having other people start so that so there's a, a space that other people will offer new possibilities. And I, I'm thinking, you know, of course, I, I was reading some of like um, the, when you had the the all woman jazz group and of course working with Bobby McFerrin and like you had these all these groups um we be three like you mentioned you know that kind of so you have all these kind of groups that you've been a part of that I assume so assuming that that kind of work is really important and that that has informed your practice it's everything yeah it's everything I feel very very fortunate to have had these long-term collaborations. Those ones you mentioned are all still active. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I I, uh, I started my artistic life in San Francisco during the early 70s, yeah. which was a hotbed of improvisation <laughs> on every level, every artistic form was improvising. So I had a lot of early lessons in uh, in doing that and I realized the longer you can get a collaboration going the more chance there is to to deepen the expression so I actually don't like performing alone I I tried it for a while uh -huh. I tried doing solo improv evenings and I think some of them were successful but they made me terribly terribly nervous yeah and uh when I'm going on stage with other people, I, I don't really feel that. I feel this excitement because we're all holding it together. So yeah. I like performing with my students, uh, any of my other collaborators. I always hope that it's going to turn into a long, a long running uh, collaboration. For example, uh, Lawrence Hobgood, who's a beautiful pianist, he and I have done some tours together. Oh, nice. he, Margie and I are now talking about, we've begun yeah. a piano, a dancer, and a singer all improvising, sometimes yeah. solo, sometimes duets, sometimes a trio. Yeah. And that feels really thrilling to me. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think I answered your question. Yeah. yeah. I collab collaborations, they, they're, you know, we're we're communal sort of creatures, mm -hmm. yeah. Dancers and singers, and musicians for sure, yeah. Uh, so doing it all alone, eh, <laughs> it's okay. It's good for practice, but right. to find out what's going on with the other people and adapt and adjust and be flexible, yeah. I I I find that very rewarding. Yeah. So this this idea of being in relation or in relationship um, brings to mind some some of the other stuff that I was kind of looking at and really curious about is um, being outside in nature and what I really appreciate about about that is that you describe the challenges of it as well as kind of the beauty and the kind of to use a word holiness of it in a way um and just i've done a fair amount of performing out in nature and stuff like that and like yeah you you trip over the uneven ground and like <laughs> <laughs> you scrape up your arm and things you know things happen it's not always um this kind of mystical experience but then sometimes it is so what draws you back 
even with those challenges, what draws you back outside? Because she is the she is the great improviser. <laughs> Nature, that's and and without uh, subjective analysis, just mm -hmm. just um, doing. I I was raised on a farm, so therefore. It began there. I played a lot by myself mm -hmm. out in the fields and pastures and woods. Uh, and I've taken my students on, you saw in the book, but like no. any number of mostly successful, sometimes terrifying uh, <laughs> trips into the high desert in New Mexico, uh, the Rogue River in springtime, high water, uh, I, I'm just outside with them as much as I can. There are times when you want to be indoor, you want the smooth floor and you want the acoustics of a closed building and all that. But uh, I I really want to balance that with being out where the experience of, of nature moving and adapting and adjusting and correcting uh, for example, when they're in Hawaii, I always take them to see the volcano. Pele mm -hmm. is the the name the volcano has here on our island. And uh, they're changed by that. Mm. I take them to a to an old eruption from the 60s. And there's a huge uh, expanse that has all these formations and these places where the lava has cracked and broken away. And down inside, it's pink. So... Uh, color shape form silence a kind of expanse that there's no way you can get that inside a room mm -hmm. so i i would say my i my studio uh, on my farm here is a thousand square foot studio which is open pretty much three sides okay big open doors we don't even have screens on those so it's just big open so the trade winds are blowing through the whole experience is meant to remind us constantly of our part in the great improvisation of life does does being outside or even in your studio with all the doors open and stuff like that does that change like the technique of how you have to sing like, does that change how you're singing or how you're using your body to sing? Well, if we're indoors, the studio has good acoustics, so it doesn't change because the roof line is still the same, okay. the walls, yeah. what makes the acoustics happen is still the same. Yeah. That's the trouble with singing outside. You've got to uh, adapt. I can remember this time when I lived in Point Reyes for a long time, north of San Francisco, and Duh, without knowing what I was doing, I took a group out to the sand dunes leading up to a beach. And I had the idea we were going to sing in the dunes and we were going to go out to the beach. So we get in the dunes and there it's like dead. This sand is so heavy and thick. Like we couldn't, there was no acoustic at all. The wind's blowing. Yeah. So we couldn't hear each other. We couldn't get any... Then we went out to the beach and I had not calculated for high tide. So A, there was hardly any beach. And B, the sound of the tide coming in overwhelmed everything. Yeah. So I learned right away that I had to make a collaboration with nature. I couldn't just go and impose myself and the singers yeah. in a, a natural setting. When we went down that river, the Rogue River, 
it was very dangerous. It was uh -huh. high water. People were constantly spilling into the river and having to be saved. And lots of times by the end of the day, all I could do was sob that mm. we had not actually had a death that day. <laughs> I mean, like it was just huge. My misunderstanding of how, of, of actually what we were doing there. I, I think the improvisation of that was more just listen to the river just make it down to the bottom don't try to do big singing we probably would have been better off to sing just at the end of the day on the banks of the river yeah yeah you, know, you can't underestimate nature's power and uh, uh dimension so I, I just have learned so many humbling <laughs> So many humbling experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I mean, I, you know, I, again, I dancing outside, like I think about like the, the dance forms that I mostly trained in, which comes from this kind of Western theatrical tradition, right? Modern, some ballet, like contemporary forms, but the difference in how the body is used because you're basically on a flat floor um, you know, would be wood or some kind of other kind of flat dance floor and thinking about forms of dance that were created on the sides of a hill or on rocky ground or yeah, yeah. Like, like the technique of moving would be different. It would, you can't, you can't do a tendu or something in like sand or a grass. I mean, would, that just wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't develop. So how do I change my body to honor the environment that I'm in, as opposed to trying to impose these other ideas onto it, right? I have a couple of dancer friends here on the island who were trained in hula and mm -hmm. have lived here for a long time. So we sometimes go just to be together for dawn at one of the beaches. And the beaches on the big island are often have a lot of lava on them. They're not the okay. sandy groovy paradise entry yeah. you have to pay attention so for the dancers it's all about uh, how do you dance on lava how slowly can you move so that you don't hurt yourself mm -hmm. uh, or disrupt the situation so maybe just getting across the beach is your dance yeah uh, and, and that kind of adjustment I feel like the arts are altogether a humbling experience because they're so enormous. Mm -hmm. All that can be learned, it's never ending. It's all of a lifetime. And sometimes the lessons are bigger than others. And yeah. I, I feel like if you collaborate with nature, you're going to um, increase your capacity for humbling <laughs> It's because she's a, she's a very big participant in it. Yeah. If if I'm on the beach and it's windy, I I can't compete with that. Mm -hmm. I have to sing in my own self in the best way I can without trying to uh, compete. Yeah. With nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's I I certainly always love whatever kind of kind of art form it is. Um, when it's trying to be put into a more natural environment that is not trying to outdo it 
and it's just be trying to like be a part of it in it you know um exactly kind of weave into it i guess like to what i, I want to go back to one thing you said earlier and uh because i've been kind of like i think it's been ruminating in there in the back of my head a little bit um and this idea of emptiness and i mean i think i know what you mean by it but i kind of want to like pull it apart just a little bit uh because there's there is this like emptiness but there's also this there's also like the collaborators you have on stage and there's also the venue that you're in, if you're inside or outside or in a big venue or a little venue. And then there's also the whole history of the training that you bring with you, right? So there's all these elements that are present um, that maybe is like a ground or a, a world in which you're inhabiting for that moment. And so the moment isn't empty. The moment is like full of all of these other things that are going to influence you and inform you. Even just knowing that, oh, this performance is supposed to be an hour is a kind of like, <laughs> here's a frame that you have to step into or something. And so I guess like how does, with your being empty, which I'm kind of assuming meaning without too many preconceived ideas of what you're going to do without planning, oh, I'm going to start with this kind of sound or melody or something um and being open to to whatever comes up but there's also the history of which you bring to that moment and the training that you have had and it, can you talk about that that kind of balance between tradition context and spontaneity well i'm going to stand by the empty please yes you do but uh <laughs> all that training and and there is a lot of training for me that's how i got into teaching improvisation because it was very important to me that improvisation be honored as a form that you study that as a kind of pedagogy so yeah. i started to think like how what would i teach first and what do i normally teach second and how could i adapt and so that's where the book came from, an, an idea for an improviser that seemed very strange to me at the time I uh, was asked to write a book. So th there is all that, the the study and the, the warming up and all of that. But when I walk on stage, I, that's too heavy a load to uh, have anywhere near my conscious mind. Oh, sure. Sure. So it's it's got to be like kind of in the air around me is this and somewhere in my in my the lining of my skin is all this uh, knowledge and awareness. But if I if I start to attach at all, it's mm. a slippery slope. Yeah, it really is. This. So when i started studying with bobby that was the condition we would go on stage we know nothing we know nothing we know nothing 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 we know nothing 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 and th there's one thing to do that alone it's another thing to do it with uh four other people in the case of bobby we were all a bit saved because we knew he would start uh, it was it was his gig 
Right, right, right. So we were in a way uh, the, the 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 chorus right. of him. Yeah. And uh, that gave me a bunch of years to learn how to be in an improvisational space in front of thousands of people, but I wasn't the bottom line. Right. <laughs> then when Weeby 3 broke off from that because Bobby was going off to do conducting work, classical right. music, uh, the three of us thought, well, what if there is no leader? What if we don't know who's going to start? Yeah. Uh, that was a huge change because we realized how sheltered we'd been in a way hmm. by his presence and him holding the bottom line. Yeah. With the three of us, there it, it, it was so raw and so uh, so wonderful because we trusted each other hugely. And we had uh, a, a, a big palette because we had a bass singer, we had a percussion singer, we had a storyteller, we had all of us being able to sing harmonically and melodically and rhythmically. And it, it really worked. Uh, and the big agreement had to be with the three of us, empty, mm -hmm. not to be, because if somebody goes out there with something, it, we're, we're all gonna feel it. You know how that is? Even yeah. if they don't say, I have this idea I'd like to put in there tonight. <laughs> you can feel if somebody's got like an agenda. Yeah. Agenda. <laughs> or if in the middle of the performance, somebody starts telling a story and you say to yourself, wait a minute, I heard that story before. Uh, that's got to be the agreement that we don't go there. Yeah, that we that we veer away from anything that uh, repeats. On the other hand, I feel like there's a kind of tyranny of improvisation <laughs> that there's this feeling of I must never ever repeat anything. Right. And I I I actually don't believe that either. I feel like mm -hmm. there is a there are ideas that want further examination. Yeah. My agreement with myself is I just don't go down the same road. But I notice if I'm on the road, yeah. then I have to get myself on a side path. Uh, yeah. But that means having collaborators that you really believe are on that same path. Other, otherwise... <clears throat> Right in the middle of it, they'll start doing something that you know is not improvised, and it 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 really puts a rock in the road. Yeah. Uh, when I work with Lawrence, for example, he's such an extraordinary pianist. I I have no idea where he gets the ideas that he puts out, but when he does, I feel like this whole world opens up for me that I would never wow. have found on my own as a yeah. as an instrumentalist with eighty eight keys to choose from. So every, every kind of collaborative partner we choose has their whole bowl of ideas and intelligence and training. And uh, the more, the merrier. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you taking this time this afternoon to talk with me and I'm really excited to add this conversation to the ongoing mix of conversations that I'm having around improvisation. And uh, it feels like such a rich, rich world of possibilities that everyone is exploring. So uh, thank you so much. 
Could I say one more thing? Please I'm do. Initiate, I'm initiating um, uh, a global vocal improvisation network. Since it is such a, uh, a trouble to try to get improvisation uh, into the universities, into the conservatories, into the dance programs, into the all yeah. of that. Yeah. So uh, I've got 20 singers uh, worldwide who have been helping me since January. We've been having meetings yeah. every other week to talk about how to create a, a, a website network where people can go on there and find places where there's the kind of improvising they'd like to do huh? and uh we should be able to launch the network at the end of this year and uh i know it will have links to the dance world and uh to instrumentalists as well because we are so bonded to one another and we all i believe suffer from this improvisation uh, lack of information and connection uh -huh. yeah so thank you so much for doing this series because yeah. you're doing a great deal to uh to bring improvisers into a common world yeah well thank you all right well have a wonderful rest of your day you too take care daniel thank you for listening to my conversation with rhiannon and now please check out some of her recordings and you can find them on most of the streaming service and there's some on her website as well. And they are quite varied and, and wonderful in so many different ways. Um, also please out the check notes for links to Rhiannon out in the world and on the web. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to Act React. You can find us on YouTube, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbeam, as well as Vimeo. I hope you're able to join me for the next episode with Detroit-based JIT dancer, Halim Rasul. It's a very different kind of improvisational practice than the one we talked about today, but um, it was also really, really wonderful to get to know him and, and his practice. So until then, take care, be well, and live spontaneously.